0: Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome back to Central Hong Kong for 29th Floor Sunday School. Today's lesson will be covering the Come, Follow Me curriculum for September 9th through 15th. And we'll be discussing chapters 1 through 7 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a very interesting uh, epistle from Paul. And it's got kind of a complicated and a, not quite a certain background either. And it's not completely clear uh, when and where 2nd Corinthians uh, was written. And it's not even completely clear among scholars whether or not this is 2nd uh, Corinthians, Corinthians is composed of one book or if it's actually two uh, separate letters that have been added together. Um, what we do know is, if you recall, we discussed how 1 Corinthians was actually Paul's uh, second letter to the saints in Corinth. He had delivered one letter that we don't have uh, after he had spent time in Corinth establishing the church there. Then he wrote a letter to the saints, and in response to that letter, uh, Chloe, one of the faithful members of the saints, sent him a letter back telling him some of the struggles that they were having. And in response to Chloe's letter, Paul penned First Corinthians, and we obviously have that uh, in our record. Uh, after receiving First Corinthians, uh, there was then uh, that that letter was followed up by Paul's visit to the saints in Corinth, um, and so that was his second time that he visited them. But apparently, things didn't go uh, as smoothly as he thought they. Uh, as Paul was anticipating that they would, and so after he left uh, after he left Corinth for the second time, he then penned a an additional letter. Some people say that that additional letter that he penned uh, is actually the end of second corinthians it 's not we 're not exactly sure uh, and it's and it 's possible we simply do not have that letter, but that letter was a much more uh, rebuking letter that Paul penned to the corinthians and we see some and, and we know this because we can see some hints in the text of paul referencing uh different letters that he has written to them some of which we know and you know some of which we obviously have here in the scriptures and some of which we're not quite sure where those letters are and so after paul left them he penned the letter of rebuke it's believed uh and and then in response uh to that letter paul hears from uh, Titus that there has been changes in the branch, and as a result, there have been improvements of the branch, and as a result, Paul then pens what we have now as 2 Corinthians. So again, it's not quite clear whether or not 2 Corinthians is one letter or two combined. It's not quite clear whether it's actually Paul's third and fourth letters to the Corinth saints, or if it's actually his fourth epistle to them. Uh, So a lot of uncertainty, but that's kind of the fun of the New Testament, is that, you know, historians try and take as much of the pieces and put them together as they can, but there's still a little bit of mystery as to what exactly is going on and and to, you know, how many letters there are, where all those letters are. Um, So it's really, really fascinating to think that these were actually real people having real experiences, that Paul was an actual missionary writing to the saints in Corinth, uh, hoping to share with them and build uh, their faith and their witness. And, you know, anyone that served a mission can certainly relate to this. In fact, uh, just this week, I got a Facebook message from a missionary who served uh, out here in Hong Kong several years ago in the Mandarin branches, uh, a great young elder, and he's engaged to be married, and he wanted to let the, the saints out here in Hong Kong know about it. And so he asked uh, what was the best place to, to to send the wedding announcement. And I'm sure, you know, thousands of missionaries have done similar things. You you know, we use letters and we want to stay in touch with those people uh, that we've had, you know, deep, meaningful, spiritual experiences with and that we care about. And Paul was no exception for that. He was an incredible missionary full of love and just a desire to build the church and to help the members that he had spent so much effort uh, helping them uh, convert and accept Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and certainly he deeply continues to care about them, uh, and, and so he continues to send these letters and his effort to help them to grow and improve and to more fully understand and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's a little bit of a background around uh, the this Paul's second uh, epistle to the Corinthians that, that we have, um, and that we're aware of. And that's what we'll obviously be studying today is the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians. So uh, there's several main themes within this letter. Um, Paul spends some time uh, really defending himself uh, within this letter. Uh, some within the church uh, were unhappy with Paul, uh, perhaps because of the rebuke that he gave them. They, they thought it might have been too harsh. Uh, Some people disagreed with the things that he taught. Uh, There's evidence that there were other uh, missionaries that came by that were teaching uh, doctrines that were somewhat contrary to Paul. Uh, And so so Paul spends some time defending himself, defending his authority as a witness of Jesus Christ, as a missionary or as an apostle. And it's important to note that, that Paul actually very seldom uses the word apostle here. Uh, the heading obviously of this book says the second epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians but but usually when it uses the word pos, apostle here it could equally be translated as missionary so we're not necessarily referring to uh, a a member of a, a, a quorum of a body who is set apart as special witnesses of Jesus Christ. obviously Paul was that in the sense that he he had incredible spiritual experiences with the savior and because of those he was uh, an apostle he was a special witness of jesus christ testifying of him to all the world but whether or not he was actually a a part of the leadership body of the church in the same way that we think of apostle today isn't necessarily clear it isn't to be honest really that important he was no doubt a, a missionary who understood the doctrine of jesus christ well who had incredible uh, experiences and therefore was a powerful witness of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that's what Paul is. And so we can be grateful uh, for him and for his efforts. And certainly his letters are worth studying. And so that was one of his themes is that Paul is uh, defending himself. Uh, and then a the second theme uh, that, that seems to come out is, is uh, enduring trials. Paul mentions a lot about a lot of the struggles that he went through Uh, as an apostle, especially in this letter. This is, 2 Corinthians is somewhat of a difficult letter because it's hard to actually kind of pick out one main theme or one main stream of thought that he's going with. He sometimes seems to kind of jump all over the place. And so some of this is just kind of what we'll be doing today is just kind of picking out uh, some of the more meaningful uh, scriptures and, and elaborating uh, on some of the doctrines that he refers to here. It's a little bit, again, it's a little bit harder to kind of put one stream of thought together as, as we tried to do with uh, First Corinthians. Uh, but that's okay. There's a lot of great stuff in here uh, that, uh, that that is certainly worth worth studying. So let's start uh, in the first chapter, uh, verses three through five, where Paul says, "Blessed be God." even the father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and the god of all comfort who comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comforter wherewith we ourselves are comforted of god for as to the su- for as the sufferings of christ abound in us so our consolation also aboundeth in christ so here paul gives an interesting take on The importance of trials in our life. Um, Essentially, what he's saying here is that part of the reason that we receive trials is so that God, and I love the names that he uses for God in here, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, obviously a testimony here that uh, God the Father and Jesus Christ are two separate beings, uh, the Father of of mercies, and the God of all comfort. And it's just beautiful names to think of, uh, to think of God that way. Certainly uh, rather different than we often think of the, the God of the Old Testament. And we'll see, what God, we'll see a lot of what Paul is doing here is trying to uh, distinguish the gospel of Jesus Christ from the teachings of the Old Testament. He gets into that into uh, quite a bit of detail uh, a few chapters later. Uh, so God comfort us in, comforts us in our tribulation, so that we may be able to comfort others. And I don't know, that's certainly true from my from my own experience. I've had uh, challenges in my own life that have that have been hard to get through. Um, and, and as but as I've done so, uh, one of the one of the joys of getting through those challenges is that when you see other people uh, with their own struggles and with their own challenges. You're able to relate to them on such a deeper level. Uh, with both of my parents passing, uh, they they both both my parents passed uh, due to uh, you could say brain-related problems. My dad had a biking accident and suffered a severe brain injury, and he was in a coma for a few uh, for, for over a week. And he he came out of that, but he was never quite the same. And he later aggravated that uh, injury as a result of a fall and passed shortly after that. And then my mom had an aneurysm burst in her brain, a very severe uh, burst and, and uh, that that took her life uh, there, she wasn 't able to recover from that and, and so that was very painful to, to to see both of these these people that I love dearly in those situations. but as interesting as a few, weeks, uh, a few weeks after both of my parents had passed, I had a colleague uh, from mainland China, uh, no religion background, religious background whatsoever, a typical You know, Chinese, grew up without uh, any religion in his life, uh, didn't believe in God. And his father suffered a stroke. And his father, after the stroke, was in a situation very similar to what both of my parents had been in. Uh, And I was able to relate to him on such a deeper level and really feel uh, the pain that he was going through. As he and his family were, especially his mom, were struggling with the decision. Um, You know, the one that, that, that I confronted with both of my parents. Do you keep them on life support so that they can continue to hang around with the very, very slim possibility that eventually they'll come back in some shell of their former self? Or do you simply trust in God and let nature take its course? Uh, And that was a very, very difficult uh, decision for my colleague, especially because he didn't believe in God. But I was grateful for the experiences that I had that gave me Uh, you know, somewhat legitimacy, some authority as I was speaking with him about these things. I knew exactly what he was going through, except the big difference for me was that I knew that no matter what happened, no matter if we let my parents stay around, and so they existed as vegetables for several years, or whether or not we let nature take its course and fulfill, uh, you know, the will that they had previously expressed and trust in God that everything would be okay— uh, that, that was the big difference, was that I had that trust in God, and that he didn't. But I was so grateful that I had, had those experiences at that time, because I was able to relate to him on such a deep level, and share my witness of God, and my testimony of Jesus Christ, that everything will be okay. And, and this, I love this word, consolation, in verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth in Christ. And I want to share a, a quote with you. Um, and as, as I was preparing this, I, I wasn't able to find where I got this quote, so I'm kind of uh, frustrated. I certainly haven't read this book. It, it's from a, uh, a, a doctor named Arthur W. Frank, and it's called The Renewal of Generosity, Illness, Medicine, and How to Live. And I just haven't read this book. I got it from another book where I found it, but I can't recall uh, the, the source that I found it from. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a beautiful quote talking about the meaning of consolation uh, where Dr. Frank says before and after fundamental medicine offers diagnosis drugs and surgery to those who suffer it should offer consolation. Consolation is a gift. Consolation comforts when loss occurs or is inevitable. This comfort may be one person's promise not to abandon another. Consolation may render loss more bearable by inviting some shift in belief about the point of living a life that includes suffering. Thus, consolation implies a period of transition, a preparation for a time when the present suffering will have turned. Consolation promises that turning. I think it's beautiful to talk about how he talks about consolation is a gift. Consolation is what comes uh, before and after the the, the, the important scientific, the important logistics of uh, diagnosis and drugs and surgeries and all of the things that we generally think of medicine. Consolation is that holistic, that spiritual side to medicine, as Dr. Frank says. It's, it's that part that, that doesn't just heal the body, but it also speaks to the soul as well. And that's what we are able to do as we endure through our sufferings And as we endure through trials and as we come out on top of them, we are able to console others, to provide that consolation as they endure their trials. And of course, the ultimate uh, consolator, the ultimate provider of consolation is Jesus Christ. And just as I was able to relate to my colleague and say, you know what, I've been there, I know how challenging that is. And I was able to relate to him on a much deeper level. Christ, because of his atonement, because of everything that he's been through, he can in every single situation say, I know how you feel. I've been there. I've experienced that. And I can provide comfort to you. And I can provide the the holistic help that you need, not just to heal your body, but more importantly, to heal your soul from whatever pain going through whether it be your own fault or whether it be the fault of the mistakes that you've made christ can be there for us to provide the consolation that we need and how beautiful it is that we are able uh, through our testimony of christ and because of the experiences that we have to be miniature saviors on mount zion to be miniature uh consolators to provide consolation (laughs) to those who are in need and to those who are struggling because of our testimony and because of the things that we endure. So, beautiful concepts around this idea of consolation at the very beginning of this uh, Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. With the end of chapter 1, it's obvious that Paul had planned on seeing the saints again. Um, going back to Corinthians, uh, appears to be for a third visit to them, but he wasn't able to make it. He got uh, uh, other other things came up. Uh, there was a, ba- a rebellion um, around in Ephesus where he had been, and so he had to flee. and He headed up to uh, Macedonia, and, and that's where he met Titus, uh, who gave him the update. But uh, and then Paul, in response, pens this letter, and he. And at the end of chapter 1, he apologizes to the saints that he wasn't able to, uh, to go back and visit them as he had promised. Uh, verses uh, 1, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verses 21 through 20. Uh, well, 19 and 20, that's where we get this idea that there were those that are upset that Paul hadn't kept his promise. Um, but in verses 21 through 22, it's beautiful. He says, now he which, establishes, which establisheth us... With you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So Paul is teaching here um, through 19 and 20, and then through 20 and 22, which we just read. That even though Paul himself is not perfect and doesn't always keep his promises as things come as things come up god always does keep his promises and even though paul is disappointed that he wasn't able to keep the promise of visiting them again god will never disappoint us and he always keeps his promises because he is the one that establishes us that anointed us and he has sealed us by the spirit in our hearts and i love this idea of given the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. And earnest, I like to think of it here as being a, a guarantee. Um, if you've purchased a house, you've probably provided earnest money at the time that you signed the contract. It's that little, <clears throat> it's that, a little, a little it's, a, it's an a, initial down payment uh, to the seller of the house, letting them know that you are earnest, guaranteeing, securing to them that you are sincere in your efforts and your desire to buy this house and so they are therefore willing to move forward and according to paul god provides us this earnest this guarantee this evidence that god is there and that we can move forward with our faith in christ and that guarantee that earnest is the spirit of god in our hearts so i love that beautiful concept god is there he will not let us down and as evidence that he is there and that we can move forward trusting and having faith in him, he gives us the gift of the Holy Ghost in our hearts. Moving on to chapter 2, uh, Paul begins to discuss, apparently he was very sorrowful <coughs> from one of his earlier visits. And part of the problem uh, seems to be focused around one individual uh, that, that was creating problems. We're not quite sure the nature of Uh, of the problem, Um, but uh, he he was, as a result of this individual's uh, work, uh, Paul's earlier visit, which again was the second visit to the Corinthians, uh, didn't go quite as planned, and Paul refers to it as his his sorrowful visit, Uh, but the saints have have dealt with this brother uh, in a manner, and as a result, Paul has a little advice for them, and, and for this, I because I think it's a little more clear in here, I turn to the Wayment translation of the New Testament. And in verses 6 through 8, we read, uh, This punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for him. And again, the him here as we're referring to is this brother in the body of saints that was causing problems and uh, was part of the reason Paul's uh, second visit to them didn't go quite as planned. So the punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for him so that you ought to forgive and, for com- and comfort him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive pain. So I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So, again, Paul here is, is, is teaching us how we are to deal with those who have made bad decisions within the church. It's, and we get a little insight as to how the, the earlier church was governed. Apparently, there was a majority decision to disfellowship this man, and and so that resolved the problem of the of the issues that he was creating, but it didn't pro- solve the problem of how to help this brother repent, and so Paul's counsel to them is that they he urges them to reaffirm their love for this man. So and certainly that's how we should be dealing and and how we should view discipline as it comes from the church, whether it be a disfellowship or an excommunication. The purpose of doing so, of course, we want to solve any problems that are being caused. But more importantly, we want to make sure that individuals that have made mistakes have the opportunity to repent. And then our job, our responsibility as saints, as members of the body of Christ, is not to hold out judgment and to refuse to uh, forgive those that have made mistakes, <clears throat> our responsibility is to forgive them and to show greater love to them, to encourage and support them uh, in their changes and in their repentance. So excellent counsel from Paul there. We move now to chapter 3, uh, part, another part of the reason that Paul uh, was experiencing problems here, and we don't know if it's related to the man that was uh, disfellowshipped in chapter 2, But uh, part of the problem was that there were uh, Judaizers within the branch. I don't know if they came after Paul's first visit or exactly when they arrived there. We don't know those details. But if you recall, Judaizers are those that uh, continue to hold fast to the law of Moses, uh, to this idea that uh, members of the church must first accept the law of Moses and accept uh, Judaism as, as taught by the Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, as a pathway to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so Paul spends a lot of his, <clears throat> a lot of his missionary efforts, really everywhere he goes, teaching against this idea of uh, that you first have to accept Judaism before you can accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> and so in trying to convey them and trying to uh, support. Uh, his claim to authority and to actually be teach uh, and s- to support the idea that what he is teaching is correct, uh, Paul asked the question: uh, Do I am I supposed to show a recommendation to you to prove that I'm apostle? How am I supposed to prove to you that I am a legitimate apostle or missionary here? And in doing so, we we get this beautiful uh, language in chapter three, verse three. So. Uh, In chapter 2, again, he says, you know, what recommendation am I supposed to show to you? And they use the word recommendation and epistle uh, in similar ways. So in verse 2, he says, you are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read of all men. Paul says, my evidence that I am a missionary of Jesus Christ, a true witness of him, is the change that my message has had upon your hearts. You are the recommendation. You are the proof that I am a true missionary of Jesus Christ. Then verse 3. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Beautiful uh, concept that that the law of God... Or under the law of Moses, the law of God was written on tables of stone. Think of the Ten Commandments. Moses going up to Mount Sinai where the finger of the Lord writes these commandments on tables of stone. Paul says the gospel of Jesus Christ is not written on tables of stone, but it's written on, beautiful language here, the fleshy tables of the heart. It's not written upon the things of the world. It is written upon our heart—that That is the evidence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You no longer need the evidence of God coming down from Sinai, miraculously using his finger to write these things. That was great persuasion to the Jews that God was actually leading and guiding them. But you should have a more personal witness. You should have more personal evidence that God is guiding you. That God is there, and that the things that Paul is teaching are true, and that he is a witness of Jesus Christ, and that evidence is not some table that was miraculously, uh, not not some stone that was miraculously provided, but rather it is what is written on your heart. It is the change that you have seen in yourself. It is your own personal witness of Jesus Christ. That should be the evidence that you seek for as evidence that Paul is a witness of Christ and that the things that he is teaching are true. Verses 5 and 6. Now that we are sufficient of ourselves to think any... Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life." So again, he's drawing this con- contrast between the Old Testament and the law and that is written on tables of stone and the New Testament <clears throat> or the Gospel of Christ which is not written on tables of stone but written on the fleshy tables of the heart. And the idea here <clears throat> is that we are sufficient of ourselves to think that anything of ourselves, we are the witnesses uh, of God's existence just as we talked about but what has happened to us uh, for the letter killeth but the spirit giveth life and again as we're talking about killeth here as it he uses the word to kill here think of death think of death being the separation of two things within the gospel and whereas the law has the effect of separating us from God showing that we are separate from God and that we are not yet able to be with Him. The Spirit draws us closer to God. The Spirit connects us with God and gives us life, life being the opposite of death. So if death is a connection, uh, sorry, if death is a separation of two things, then life is those two things coming together again. And the idea of two things that are separated coming together is the very meaning of the word atonement, or at one meant where two things that are separated come together at one. And that, of course, is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. Whereas the law of Moses was a strict law given to eventually lead the Jews to God, but in the moment it was given to separate them. It was given to let them know how powerful God was, and how uh, small they were compared to God, and how uh, separate and how for a time they had to be separated from him while they repented. That was part of the purpose of the law. The law, according to Paul, the letter killeth. It separates us from God, but it is the spirit that brings us closer to God. And, the, and these ideas are are further uh, elaborated on in verses 13 through 17. And not as Moses which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So as we think of a veil, a veil is also what separates two people. Think of, a, uh, think of the wedding veil. Uh, a veil is, is draped over the face of the bride up until the very moment in which those two become one. One symbolizing that the bride and the groom remain separated until the wedding until the marriage is actually consummated at which point the veil is lifted and those two then become one together. And Paul says that is similar to the veil that covers the children of Israel as they read the law of Moses, as they read the Old Testament, they continue to have a veil in front of them separating them from god god is high up on mount sinai and the children of israel are down below and they dare not approach him they have this veil over their hearts where they remain separated from god because they are not willing to go where he is because it is simply too hard and too demanding and paul says until they are willing to lift that veil And accept Jesus Christ, who is the one who came down from God to lift the veil, to bring us to God, to show us the way that we are able to return to God, to show us how we can lift that veil. And think of the powerful imagery of Jesus Christ when he dies, when he gives up his life. The veil in the temple was rent in two. That veil had been separated. God had come down and had been with the children of men. And then he had returned to God. Death had been beaten. The atonement of Jesus Christ had been fulfilled. And of course, the resurrection at that time was then inevitable. And all of us would be able to return to God, to be able to return to God to his presence. So that is some of the imagery that Paul is playing with here. This idea that there's a veil between us and God and it is Jesus Christ that lifts that veil. Verse 16, nevertheless when it shall turn to the Lord the veil shall be taken away. And I love in 17, and where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. It reminds me of that of of the language in Romans Uh, that I fell in love with as we were were reading that chapter. In Romans 8, verse 21, as Paul uh, taught the Roman saints about the glorious liberty of the children of God. And if you recall, we talked about how the glorious liberty of the children of God is this idea that under the law, we must exercise strict obedience. And if we are not, because we are slaves to the law, And any violation of that law separates us from God. Now, the glorious liberty of the children of God was manifest and and evidenced through Jesus Christ, through his atonement. It gives us liberty in that we are no longer obligated to perfectly comply with every single tenant under the law of Moses. No, we now have the liberty of knowing that we are going to make mistakes but we have means of repenting of those mistakes. We are able to overcome those mistakes through Jesus Christ, through his atonement, and through our faith in him. That is the glorious liberty of the children of God. That is the liberty of the spirit that Paul is referring to here at the end in chapter of chapter 3. And oh, how that is so different from the veil that was over the minds of the children of Israel under the law of Moses and under the Old Testament, where you have these strict rules with strict punishments for violation of those rules. But if the children of Israel could only lift the veil over their minds and over their hearts, they would see the glorious liberty that Jesus Christ provides. That is made possible through his atonement, that we no longer have to live in fear of the letter of the law, but rather we can live in liberty of Christ, knowing that because of our relationship with him, we can repent, we can change, and most importantly, we can return to the presence of our Heavenly Father. Uh, Moving to chapter four, uh, chapter four deals with a lot of the trials that Paul has endured. Uh, in his service as a missionary, but it is his faith that helps him to pull through these trials. Uh, Verses 8 through 10, Paul testifies that we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. So even though we have trials, even though we have struggles, even though we have difficulties in our life, we have troubles, we have perplexions, we have persecutions, and we are cast down because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because of our testimony of the dying of the body, sorry, in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have testimony of Christ, of his death and his resurrection, as Paul testifies in verse 10. Because we have knowledge of these things, we know that the trials and the struggles that we go through are temporary and that we will eventually come through them and that everything will work out okay. It's like we talked about last week as we talked about what prophecy means. And as Paul uh, instructs us that we should seek to prophesy Talked about how the idea behind prophecy and the spirit of prophecy is the knowledge that because of Jesus Christ, because of his resurrection, we will all be resurrected. And we can prophesy, we can be certain that in the end, we will return to live with God, that we will be with God again. And all of the struggles that we go through, all of the trials and the temptations that we endure here are temporary. They are but for a short time, and eventually we will be with God again. Paul elaborates on that in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 4. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Uh, Beautiful promises here that these afflictions, these trials that we endure, Paul says, are but for a moment. And it reminds me of uh, some of my favorite scriptures found in D&C section 121, when the prophet Joseph Smith is in Liberty Jail, when it seems like everything is working against him and he's starting to legitimately question whether or not this is all going to work out. The beautiful words that the Savior gives to him of comfort in DNC 121, verses 7 and 8. My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine afflictions shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. The promise that the trials that we endure here are just temporary but for a small moment. And all we have to do is endure this small moment. And if we can do so faithfully, we have the promise, we have the assurance because of the death and the resurrection and the atonement of Jesus Christ that eventually we will receive the glorious blessings that God has promised to us. That we can be sure. If we can but endure our trials for a small moment and Paul is teaching that so beautifully here <clears throat> verse 18 while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal <clears throat> so Paul as he is as he frequently does comparing and contrasting the things of the world with the things of god The things that are material with the things that are spiritual. The things that are temporal with the things that are eternal. (laughs) And here he compares the things that are seen, meaning the things of the world, the things that are temporal, with the things that are not seen. The things of the spirit, the things of eternity. And this idea of the things that are not seen are eternal sheds a little bit of light upon some famous verses uh, that we as latter-day saints are very familiar with alma 32 21 and again keep in mind this concept that the things which are not seen are eternal or alma teaches and now as i said concerning faith faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things therefore if ye have faith ye hope for things which are not seen which are true so did you get that? Faith is things that we hope is the hope for things which are not seen, which are true. And Paul teaches us here, things which are not seen are eternal. So faith is a hope for things that are spiritual. It's the hope for eternal things. And compare and contrast in your mind the, the view of life that you have as a believing Christian that hope for things that are eternal, with those that don't believe in God, with those that don't have that hope, with those that don't even recognize the existence of spiritual things. And that's what our faith is. Our faith is the hope that there is something more. Our faith is the hope that there is within each of us a spirit. Our faith is the hope that there is more to meets, more than meets the eye to this world, but rather there's a spiritual element that is there that is powerful and that is dictated and led by a loving Heavenly Father. That's what our faith is. Our faith is the hope that there are things there that you cannot see with the eye, that there are things there that are eternal, and that God is there, And he is loving us and guiding us and directing us back to his presence. Uh, Another scripture, uh, Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is the evidence of eternal things. It's that effort that we put forward because of our belief that there are eternal things out there it's the reason we keep the commandments it's the reason we pray it's the reason we read the scriptures it's the reason we go to church and partake of the sacrament it's the reason we love other people it's the reason we give them the benefit of the doubt all of these things we do are the evidence of our hope in things that are eternal our hope in things that are not seen So look for this phrase, things not seen, as you study your scripture and as as you think about your own life and your relationship with God. Because the things that are not seen are the things of the Spirit, are the things that are eternal. That's what Alma taught, and that's what Paul is teaching as well. So that ends uh, chapter 4, Paul testifying that if we have faith, we can get through any trials because of our faith and the things that are eternal, because of our expectation that God is waiting there for us to bless us, to comfort us, and to help us to continue to move forward. Chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 4. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, an house not made with hands eternal in the heavens, for in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked for we that are in this tabernacle do groan being burdened not for that we would be unclothed but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up to, might be swallowed up of life It seems like Paul is going back to this imagery of uh, being clothed from heaven to cover our nakedness. It seems like he's going back to the imagery of the Garden of Eden, of Adam and Eve uh, having recognized their own nakedness and being clothed, being given garments uh, divinely made uh, by God the Father out of his love for them and his desire to cover their nakedness. And of course, the word atonement uh, often comes from the the hebrew concept of uh, kippur that's often what is translated as atonement uh, the day of atonement yom kippur and kippur means to to cover Um, and that is what god did to adam and eve as they had sinned as they were now naked he covers them and this is what paul is testifying that god does to each of us even though we endure trials even though we endure uh, uh, tribulations and mistakes and temptations, God will cover our nakedness. God will cover us. He will clothe us from heaven, uh, not, of a, not of a house made with hands, uh, but some, one, one that is eternal, one that comes from God. And uh, I love the imagery at the, at the end of verse 4. clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. And in my mind, that reminds me of, of the fact that when God created the coats of skin for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness, of course, in order for a coat of skin to be made to cover their nakedness, an animal had to sacrifice his life. You can't get a coat of skin without taking the life of The original owner of that skin of the animal that donated that skin and so you had to have mortality you had to have death but that mortality is swallowed up of life that death of the animal of that sacrifice of he who did no wrong is what brings the covering is what brings life is what brings them closer to god and of course he who did no wrong is jesus christ who sacrificed himself that we can be covered of our nakedness that the results of our trials the results of our temptations and tribulations can be covered up in jesus christ because of his sacrifice because of his atonement and because of his resurrection we can be sure that god is waiting there waiting with his mansion for us with his house made without hands to cover us, to give us rest, and to welcome us home. Beautiful imagery here used by Paul. Verses 6 and 7. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So we can be comfortable knowing that we are down here on earth, and no matter what trials we confront, we know that God is there waiting for us. Even if we are absent from the Lord for a time, we know that he is there and that he is guiding us and he is directing us, even though we can't see him at this point, but those eternal things that are not seen are real and that they are there. And therefore, it's verse seven states, we walk by faith, not by sight. Verses 17 and 19 Therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature old things are passed away behold old things are become all things are become new and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And as we see this concept of reconciliation repeated in these few verses, you can think of that as being synonymous with the atonement of Jesus Christ, the reconciliation of us to God. Reconciliation, a very meaningful word, uh, which means that you take something that isn't quite up to the standard that you were expecting, and then you provide that which is necessary in order to get it to this standard, whatever adjustments, whatever changes are needed so that that thing which wasn't quite up to the standard can now be thought of within that standard. As a capital markets attorney, I deal with (coughs) uh, reconciliation of financial numbers uh, frequently. Uh, It's not uncommon for a company to want to present their financial results in a way that is not consistent with the accounting principles that uh, the regulators expect them to. And when they want to do that, they also have to include a reconciliation that shows the difference between the standards that they're using and the standards that the regulators are using. And I think that's a helpful way to think of how we must be reconciled to God. We are not living up to the standards that God imposes for us. We're simply not. So we have to make adjustments. We have to make changes in our lives. We have to go through our lives line by line, detail by detail, thinking, where is it that we are coming short? Where is it that our standard is not God's standard? And then we have to be willing to make changes while at the same time recognizing that that gap is not made made up by us changing, but that gap is made up by the atonement of Jesus Christ. He is the one that reconciles us. And as we've talked about many times before, we are not directly reconciled to God. That would not be possible. Instead, Christ came down to our level so that we could be reconciled to him. That is possible we can meet the requirements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not easy, but it's doable. We can enter into covenants with him. We can take his name upon us, and we can do our best to keep his commandments and and repent when we fail to do so. And as we do that, we are reconciled to Christ. And because Christ is one with God, as we are reconciled to Christ... Our oneness with him becomes a oneness with God the Father. And we are thus able to be reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ. As Paul teaches and as Paul teaches us here. All things are of God, verse 18, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Such a beautiful and powerful doctrine. God reconciles us to him through jesus christ because he is the one he comes down he meets us at our level because he has atoned for our sins because he has endured all things as we talked about earlier whenever we go through a trial a temptation a disappointment whatever it is that we need to overcome christ is able to say i've been there I've done that and I persevered and I made it through. And if you stick with me, you will also, you too will overcome. And together, hand in hand, I will lead you back to God the Father. Oh, I love the Savior and his gospel that allows us to be reconciled to God the Father so that we can return to be with him. moving on to chapter 6 now, and we're uh, going to start wrapping up here. God's promise to the believers <clears throat> um, is, uh, is quoted uh, by Paul at the end of chapter 6. Um, it's, it's, it's beautiful what he does here. He takes several promises within the Old Testament, and he compresses them all into a few verses here at the end of chapter 6, starting in uh, uh, verse 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty hearing into chapter 7 verse 1 having therefore these promises dearly beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of god so just as we talked about there's veils that separate us from god the father and it's our and it's christ who comes down and lifts up that veil that makes it possible for us to be one with god paul is here teaching the saints Don't put a veil between you and God. Put a veil between you and the world. Separate yourself from the world that you might become one with God, that you might be his sons and daughters, spiritually begotten of him, that you will be able to return to live with him. Put away the things of the world. Put away those things which are seen, those temporal, those material things that eventually will all come to naught. Focus on the things which are not seen, the things that are the foundation of our faith, and lift the veil between you and God and be reconciled with him that we might enjoy all the blessings, all the promises, as Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1. But to do so, we have to cleanse ourselves from filthiness of the flesh through the spirit perfecting holiness and the fear of God. What a beautiful concept that is, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. We have to make our holiness perfected or complete, and we do that through our fear of God, through our acknowledgement that He's there, through our desire to have a relationship with Him made possible through Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul finishes his letter grateful that apparently the rebuke that he had provided, and the earlier letter. Again, it seems like we don't have this letter, uh, but it seems to have had the effect that he wanted it to. Verse 10 in chapter 7, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. This notion of godly sorrow, and it ties back in verse 1, the fear of God, this godly sorrow concept that we have made mistakes and therefore as a result we are no longer able to be with god and we sorrow because of that that makes us sad that builds in us this desire this earnestness to do better to move forward with our relationship with god trusting in him to repent of our sins and to become the best that we can, to become as close to God as we possibly can, while of course recognizing that it is only through Jesus Christ that we are ultimately reconciled to God. Godly sorrow leads us to desiring to be more like Him. Now, godly sorrow is contrasted by something that, uh, but that Mormon witnessed among his people, and uh, those beautiful chapters that end the Book of Mormon is as everything seems to be coming unraveled and Mormon does everything that he can to try to teach his people to come to Christ and to change and to become better. Uh, In the book of Mormon, chapter one, verse 13, but behold, this my joy was vain for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness and sin. So Mormon here, uh, along with what Paul does, shows the two types of sorrow. You have the sorrowing of the damned, as Mormon puts it, in Mormon 113. And the world sorrows because you can't always be happy in sin. The Lord will not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. That is why the world sorrows, because they are not always able to do the things that they want to do. They're not able to commit the sins that they want to while simultaneously being truly happy. But godly sorrow recognizes that if I make mistakes, I can still be happy. Not because I will find happiness in those mistakes, but because I can change, because I can repent of those mistakes. I can be reconciled to God. And if I do so, then I have the knowledge that God will be there waiting for me. God will be there with outstretched hands, taking me home, ready to clothe me, to cover me, to provide the comfort that I need. Paul ends his chap- ends this, uh, the, the chapters that we'll be studying today in verse 16. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence you in you in all things. And I think it's beautiful here that after Paul gives them a trial, after Paul writes his letter of rebuke and watches their positive response, that he has confidence in them in all things because he has seen their godly sorrow. And just as Paul feels that way about the saints in Corinth, it's my witness that God feels that way about us. He allows us to endure trials. That's one of the reasons that we came here. But I know that as we overcome these trials, and as we help others overcome their trials, that God is there waiting for us to be reconciled to us, to lift us up to his standard through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And it's my witness that we can do so because of our faith in Christ, because of our knowledge of his resurrection, and that the knowledge that this life, the things that are seen are only temporary, but we have things that are not seen waiting for us. These blessings are there if we will but choose to follow Christ, to follow his example, and to be reconciled to God through him. God rejoices and has all confidence in us in all things. And I pray that we will be worthy of that confidence and do so.